Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. There was some good news to report from the national parks this past week, as a growing population of the Nene, also known as the Hawaiian Goose, enabled it to be downlisted from endangered to threatened. Contributing photographer Rebecca Ladson also shared some of her favorite photo locations in the national park system, and we were able to share a story about a historian's concerns over what history we might be losing at Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument. You can find those and other stories about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, the topic of invasive animal species. Think Burmese pythons in Everglades National Park, wild hogs in Great Smoky Mountains National Park, and even feral cats at Cape Hatteras National Seashore, and how the National Park Service is trying to tackle them take center stage. Rebecca Latson and I take over the second half of the show by discussing what we consider to be some of the most photogenic destinations in the national park system. And we include some surprise locations. National parks long have been infiltrated by non-native plant and animal species. There have been feral mules in Grand Canyon National Park, burrows in Death Valley National Park that aren't native, mongoose in Virgin Islands National Park, and, of course, Burmese pythons in Everglades National Park and neighboring Big Cypress National Preserve. How big of a problem are these and other non-native species in the park system? A paper released earlier this month claims they are a huge problem. The authors wrote that the invasion of non-native species is, quote, undermining the National Park Service mission, unquote, and threatens the very integrity of the park system. David Halleck, the current superintendent of the National Parks of Eastern North Carolina and with experience at Yellowstone and Everglades National Parks, was a co-author on the paper and joins us today to discuss its findings. Welcome to The Traveler, Dave. Thank you, Kurt. So uh, how serious is the problem of invasive faunal species? You know, invasive animals are a major problem in the national parks. We have about 419 national parks right now. And when you look across those parks, it appears that about half of them have issues with non-native animals. Uh, With over 1,400 populations of those invasive animals and with more than 300 species. Wow. And this is not a, a recent event. I mean, these, these go back quite a few decades, if not longer, no? That's correct. Not only is it not a recent event, sometimes it could be even considered potentially an intentional event. Uh, when you look back at ways that parks were managed uh, before some of the modern paradigms of, of ecosystem management were uh, present, we sometimes introduce these species uh, for new opportunities. So it really depends on where you look. Some of the non-native animals that we have in parks were accidentally introduced. Other ones were purposefully introduced for certain opportunities. Uh, So it really depends on where you look. Yeah. And I guess, um, you know, one of the parks you worked at, Yellowstone National Park, uh, the lake trout problem in Yellowstone Lake. um, And I believe uh, lake trout were... um, intentionally introduced to Shoshone Lake in in Yellowstone, no, in in Jackson Lake? 
Yeah, it's a little, uh, the history is a little bit unclear when it comes to Yellowstone Lake itself, but certainly many of the other species that uh, are there for recreational opportunities, like rainbow trout as an example, were intentionally introduced. And uh, once they were, uh, getting back to your question about how big of a problem are they, they can have pretty dramatic impacts to native park ecosystems. And not only just the ecosystem, but also some of the visitor experiences like recreational angling. Uh, to think that a place like Yellowstone National Park used to have fluvial or river running uh, Arctic uh, grayling and no longer has them at all anymore, with the exception of a few uh, lakes that were stocked. Uh, that's a really uh, sad state of affairs when it comes to uh, both the ecosystem and also the opportunity for anglers. I guess um, perhaps one of the most alarming situations today is the um, arrival one way or another of the Burmese pythons in Everglades and what those huge constrictors are doing to um, the rest of the, the wildlife in those parks. Yes, uh, there are so many different uh, non-native species down in South Florida, of course, due to the tropical environment and uh, the connectivity in particular of all the water bodies with canals and lakes and, and, and streams down in South Florida. It, it's a hard place to stop the movement of those animals. But but for sure, uh, Burmese python, uh, to some degree, have become uh, the, the poster child of invasive animals in the U.S., can they be removed? I, I know, you know, at Yellowstone Lake, um, they, they've had some pretty good success in beating down the lake trout populations, although I don't think uh, they ever expect to completely remove them. And I'd be curious what uh, what the situation is with the Burmese pythons. Yeah, I think the answer of can, can invasive animals be removed? The answer is yes, they can be removed. Can they be controlled? Uh, that becomes a slightly harder question. And when I say controlled, I mean their populations brought to a level where they're no longer having a measurable or significant impact on the native ecosystem. The third question, which is really the, the hardest question, is can they be eradicated? And as you go through those questions from removal to control to eradication, uh, the prospects become uh, more and more difficult. Um, but overall, actually, parks have been, to, been able to achieve, uh, to some degree, success for all three of those categories. Uh, in almost all cases, there can be some removal of the invasive animal. Uh, control is typically the goal. You know, you want to just try to find some way to make that invasive animal ecologically insignificant. And uh, that can be challenging in and of itself, but many parks have been successful there. And I think that is one of the highlights of the paper that we recently published, many parks, whether it be uh, Everglades, which is making progress, whether it be Cape Hatteras Seashore, where we are trapping and selectively removing uh, red foxes and mink uh, and feral cats, uh, that it, parks are capable of controlling these non-native animals. It just requires some resources, some staffing, and some expertise. Probably more importantly, it requires public input and work across boundaries with uh, local government, state governments, and adjacent landowners. Because as you know, whether it's a Burmese python uh, or a red fox, uh, they are not necessarily paying attention to boundaries, uh, jurisdictional boundaries. Yeah. Now, of course, um, in this day and age when there are so many demands being placed on the National Park Service, it's got to be costly both in terms of dollars and manpower to address these invasive species. 
It is, and that's why if you speak to an invasive animal or plant expert, they'll always tell you by far, uh, and this is no surprise, that prevention is the key to any of these invasive animal problems that we have. If you can prevent them from coming in in the first place, which might be costly, by the way, in and of itself, the cost associated with that is likely to be an order of magnitude lower than the cost associated with trying to control or eradicate an established population. Uh, so it can definitely be uh, expensive, but you know, in some cases it's worth it. And, and interestingly, we tend to think very negatively about invasive animals because we're talking about removing them or killing them or relocating them. In fact, the problem is more related to management and recovery of the native animals in that ecosystem. So uh, it really depends on, on which way you look at it. But uh, in many cases, the goal is really to allow the native species to flourish, and that may only require some level of control. You know, this is kind of um, an aside from the, the paper, but with climate change, you know, some parks, the conditions are changing, and it's making it tougher, I guess, for, for native species and allowing non-native species to come in. Uh, that's correct, uh, Kurt. And what's interesting about that and, and the nexus between that topic and the paper that we prepared really relates to uh, one of the recommendations that we have, and that is on the need for decision support. So when a park manager, a, a park's resource manager or scientist is looking at uh, potentially an entire portfolio of invasive animals. Take a place like Everglades, for example, or even Cape Hatteras, where we have many different non-native mammals that are affecting uh, nesting shorebirds. Uh, it's hard to know which one should we focus on because oftentimes it's, it's just not feasible to focus on all of them. So managers are having to look at lots of different factors and develop uh, decision support tools that look at a variety of different criteria. You know, what is the intensity of the existing infestation? How many native species uh, are being affected by the invasive animal? What is the likelihood of that invasive animal's ability to adapt and stay in this ecosystem in the future? Is it likely to be uh, in, in such a prime environment because of climate change or other factors that uh, it just may not be feasible to control in the future. So uh, decision support tools that help resource managers guide their way through these complex problems and prioritize what to focus on are really important. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles from Key West, just very well might be the most remote national park in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, kayaking, and relaxing on pristine beaches. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. 
by funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at www.gtnpf.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. After talking with Superintendent Halleck, I reached out to Jennifer Siraki, the National Park Service's Invasive Animal Coordinator, to get an overview of her program. Jennifer has what might seem to many to be a daunting job, making inroads against invasive animal species that in some parks are greatly disrupting natural ecosystems. Thanks for joining us, Jennifer. Well, thank you for having me. When exactly was the position of Invasive Animals Coordinator created, and what is your role in that job? Well, the Invasive Animal Coordinator position was actually created a few years ago, but the position was only a temporary position. In the last year, it has been made a permanent position, and I was hired into that. My, my job is to help develop a service-wide program that will deal with invasive animals at the national parks. And um, the program is actually being created in response to the uh, study for which the journal article was just released. It's got to be pretty daunting. I mean, the, the recent uh, paper that came out, uh, The Unaddressed Threat of Invasive Animals in U.S. National Parks, painted a, a pretty concerning picture of the threats that these animals pose. Uh, what threats do you see, and, and do they strike at the very integrity of the park system as uh, the paper maintains? Um, so it, it definitely is a very daunting task. Um, there are uh, a number of other organizations that are also dealing with this task as well. Uh, we, we are dealing with a number of species that actually um, do a lot of damage to our parks, um, so, for instance, something like uh, feral swine is found in a number of our parks. It is one of the more common invasive animal species that, that we are finding in our parks. And it is very damaging um, due to the rooting that it does in, mm -hmm. in our parks. And um, it, it, um, it removes a lot of vegetation uh, from the, the important ecosystems that we manage um, every day. And it also um, has caused some effects for native um, animal species as well. Um, additionally, it is also very damaging to agriculture within the U.S. So by um, having feral swine in our parks, we could also potentially be, be impacting our neighbors. Yeah, I know one one park um, with those is uh, Great Smoky Mountains National Park, and uh, I guess they kind of wandered over decades ago from a, a private uh, agricultural operation, and um, I guess in some cases they, they also could pose a, a threat to park visitors, no? Yes, yes they can. Um, they, as a matter of fact, uh, for the most part, they, um, they can cause uh, great harm, to people, and on occasion they also um, may kill people, which has unfortunately recently happened to a woman in, I believe it was Texas. In a park? No, it was not in a park. Um, it was actually out in front of a home in a residential area. 
Now, invasive animals aren't, aren't new to the park. Some have been there for decades, um, and some are even beloved, such as the, the banker horses at Cape Lookout and Cape Hatteras, and perhaps the, the feral horses at uh, parks such as Theodore Roosevelt National Park. Do you come up with some sort of priority list as far as what invasive animals you deal with or attempt to deal with? Service-wide at this point, we do not, do not have that um, that sort of level of prioritization. Uh, typically, the parks will will decide what they um, would like to manage, and um, also um, those things which they have decided are are part of the resource um, that they would like to actually keep. What is the best that we can hope in places such as Everglades and Big Cypress and, and other parks like uh, Haleakala, which I think has more invasive species, granted plants and animals, than any other park? I mean, is, is it something that, like at uh, Yellowstone Lake, where you try and beat down the, the lake trout to a point that they're manageable? Um, or do we envision being able to completely remove some of these invasives? Well, it, it definitely depends upon the species. Uh, there are certainly some species that um, have been around for a long time, and it would be very difficult to remove them from parks, um, and they may even have some cultural value at this point. Um, and then there are those species where it is possible to eradicate them, um, and I think that the um, our best hope for being able to control some of these uh, species is to to work um, both with uh, formal and informal partnerships with um, local, state, federal, um, tribal entities, and also the local communities um, near the parks in order to um, manage them, uh, because managing them all um, on our own is very difficult. Does the National Park Service have the resources it needs, both in terms of dollars and staff on the ground, to aggressively and decisively make a dent in these problems? Oh, that is the tough question. Um, I think, um, of course, you know, with such large problems like these, uh, I'm not quite sure how much would be enough um, at this point in order to be able to um, to deal with these problems. However, I do think that if if we continue working with these partnerships and collaborating with other agencies and universities and local communities, that we're going to um, get much further with dealing with these invasive animal issues. Is it safe to say that there has been greater attention being given to invasive animal species in the national parks? Yes, I think with um, the advent of the invasive animals program, um, I think that does show that there is definitely more emphasis being put on um, just how important this issue is to the National Park Service and will continue to be into the future. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. 
It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. After I visit a national park, when I'm going through my photographs, it seems that they're, they're quite often disappointing. A large part of my disappointment, if not all of it, I'm sure springs from my failing skills as a photographer. And yet, are some national parks simply more photogenic than others? To explore that question, I've asked Traveler's contributing photographer, Rebecca Latson, to join us today. Hi, Becky. Hi. How are you, Kurt? I'm doing well. What do you think? Are, are some parks just naturally more photogenic, so to speak, than others? Or am I just a lousy photographer? Uh, well, you may be a lousy photographer. I don't know. But I can tell you that every single national park I've visited, and I've visited a number of them, I find something beautiful about every one of those parks. I do. And I have my favorite places in each of those parks that I visited that I like to return to again and again under different weather conditions, during different times of day, and uh, in different seasons. Well, and you've mentioned that to me before. You know, I think the average um, visitor, I mean, this is hard to believe, but Yellowstone, I think the average visit is two and a half or three days tops. And, you know, for you, that's kind of a blink of an eye. You'd like to go to a national park and explore the different settings you might want to photograph at, at different times of the day. Is it, is it better light in the morning? Is it better light in the evening? Um, so you've kind of got an edge over the rest of us. Well, I do to a point. I mean, you can get some awesome shots, even if you only have one or two days to spend in a national park. Um, I have my favorite places that I immediately head to, and I guess maybe that's the edge I have. When I visit a park for the first time, it's kind of like a reconnaissance trip because I don't really know where to go to get a shot. Even if I've done my homework and uh, have looked at other people's photos on, say, Flickr.com to see where they've been and what their favorite places are in a park. After that first visit, then I kind of know where I want to go the next time I may visit that park. And that helps a lot. But again, you can get great shots. Sometimes it's good photography. Sometimes it's serendipity that leads you to good photography. Well, that's true. I know that from my, my career as a journalist and some of the photos I've gotten over the years. Some of them were just pure luck as opposed to uh, um, adroit skill and planning. That said, um, obviously, I would say Bryce Canyon National Park is more photogenic than perhaps White Sands National Monument. Maybe. It, uh, now, I've never been to White Sands National Monument, but I have a feeling you can get some gorgeous shots there if you go at the right time of day, which is usually early in the morning or later in the afternoon and in the evening. When the sun is <clears throat> not directly overhead, but it's kind of at an angle, and so you start to get all these really cool shadows that define and delineate 
maybe curves in the sand, white sands, or curves and shadows in the hoodoos at Bryce Canyon. I, I truly believe that you can get beautiful shots at any national park you visit. You just have to be aware of your composition. And you know, look for things. You may not see the big picture. Instead, you might only need to look for little things like textures and patterns or a little bird you see or uh, a, a brightly colored insect or a wildflower. You can get pretty shots anywhere in any national park. Well, that's true. And, and obviously, you know, I've probably been to Yellowstone National Park more than any other national park. And so you, you go into the geyser basins and, and you either have those fountains of hot water and steam going skyward to, to focus on where you've got the microbial, the colorful microbial mats around the hot springs to, to um, photograph and capture in, in different angles and whatnot. One of the most unusual photos I got in the park, you know, talking about looking for the little things, we were um, on a paddling trip to Shoshone Lake and, and coming out um, towards the mouth of the Lewis River Canyon, the, the lake um, shallows out and you could look down to the sandy bottom and all the really cool ripples in the sand that the lake had created. Yes, and you know what else will help you look through some of those water shots is, uh, and this is mainly for SLR users, although I have heard of these filters being made for point and shoot cameras as well. It's called a circular polarizing filter, and it acts in the same manner as your sunglasses do. You put that filter over your lens and there's a, a, a rotating outer ring. And if you're standing at an angle to the sun and you're looking into the water and you rotate that outer ring, you're going to see the glare and reflections disappear and you can actually see down into the water. You may still get some reflections like, you know, from the trees or the mountains, but that just adds to the beauty of the shot that you can get. Yeah, I think what they really need to invent is a, a lens that you can actually dip partway into the water so you can avoid all that glare and whatnot. Well, true. I hear the GoPro, though, is, is pretty good about, you know, it's water-resistant or waterproof. You could always stick, get something like that and stick that down into the water and see what you come up with. Yeah, no, I had an Olympus um, point-and-shoot years ago that I really loved because not only was it pretty much bomb-proof in terms of dropping it and dust and sitting on it and cold, but it, it shot both um, stills and video, and you could take it underwater. Um, I had a lot of fun with that. That said, what would you say are your top five photogenic parks? Okay, top five. Well, uh, the first one on my list is Bryce Canyon National Park. Positively, absolutely. And it really doesn't matter which season you visit the park. I tend to visit national parks during the uh, late spring or uh, autumn and in the winter because the atmosphere is clearer out there and there are fewer people. Um, Bryce Canyon, the hoodoos and the red rock formations are incredible. And two of my favorite spots to photograph there, where I always get great shots, um, are at Sunrise Point during sunrise, no mm -hmm. duh. Um, but instead of looking directly toward the sunrise, I'm looking, I'm turning my camera to the side toward uh, Bryce Amphitheater. And I'm getting a shot of the light that's bathed on the uh, that's bathing the hoodoos and the amphitheater from that sunrise. The colors are saturated. I mean, they look almost fake, but they're not. They're just yeah. a deep, dark, saturated color. Yeah, I've got some wonderful shots from there, too, which disproves my theory that I'm a horrible photographer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, point taken. 
another favorite, uh, favorite place in Bryce Canyon is uh, Upper Inspiration Point. Now there's a big uh, parking lot and you can go to like lower, you, you walk up to a lower inspiration point, and then you get to like middle inspiration point. And it's a little bit of a steep slog on a very well-maintained trail to get up to upper inspiration point. But once you're there, I mean, there are not as many people there because it is a little steep. The, you get a like 180 degree view of the whole area and sunrise there again is incredible no matter where you turn your camera. So that's my first favorite uh, national park for photography. Um, I also like Big Bend National Park in Texas. Now it's out there in the middle of nowhere, but the time spent in this park is well worth the effort of getting there. And my favorite time to go is uh, late spring, like, you know, middle, late April, because the cactus out there are in bloom. And, you know, anywhere you point your camera with a blooming cactus, you're going to get a great shot because I have never seen blooms so saturated with colors of yellow and orange and magenta and red. It's an awesome national park and you get great shots of the Chihuahua Desert and uh, uh, the Chisos Mountains Volcanics. Another uh, one of my favorite spots out in that park is the Soto Vista Overlook. It's just off the Ross, Ross Maxwell Scenic Drive. And from that overlook, you can view the expanse south toward the notch of Santa Elena Canyon and right on into northern Mexico. And if you turn your camera a little, you'll be looking kind of to the northwest towards Studi Butte. And you'll be looking at some really interesting geological features there, along with that tiny leading line ribbon of road that heads towards Studi Butte. So that's my second favorite photogenic park. Well, before, before you go much further, I, I have to interject here that um, you talk about the, the colors of spring and, and two national parks that have just blown me away with their um, blooming springs. Uh, one is Saguaro National Park. You go into the cactus forest and... I would say March or um, early April, and you've got the whole world of cacti there just erupting in bloom and oranges and reds, and there's purples and yellows, and it's just incredible, and scarlet from the um, the, the claret cup cactus, and uh, it's just phenomenal. And then, you know, if, if you don't have to be anywhere <laughs> to go back to work or anything like that, you know, head a little bit north into Utah and, and visit um, Canyonlands and Arches in April, because that's when they're... they're um, um, desert plateau erupts in color with uh, Indian paintbrush and yuccas and um, claret cup cactus. And it's just amazing. You can just follow the bloom, if you will. Now, I have been to Arches National Park. I've never been in spring. I'll have to put that on my list. But you're right, Arches National Park and Canyonlands, because they're so close together, they are two great places uh, for photogra photography as well. And not only, you know, just because of the arches themselves in Arches National Park, but one of my very favorite places to visit in that park is the LaSalle Mountains uh view area or LaSalle Mountains Overlook. It's just a, a short drive past the uh, park, is it Park Avenue uh, stop? Yeah. And sunrises there are incredible. You've got the mountains in the background and you've got this wide expanse of desert area and you've got this one interesting uh, rock formation that kind of sticks out. And I don't even know if it has a name, but during the sunrises, when that sun comes up, it just bathes everything in colors and and this is one of those places where you actually can 
see the sunrise. You're not looking at anything that's being bathed by the sunlight, but you're actually looking at the sunrise. And it's really a wonderfully photogenic spot, not only for sunrise, but if you go back out there for night photography and you point your camera in the other direction, away from the mountains, toward those nearby uh, rock formations and the actual park road, not only can you get some great star shots, but you, if you slow your shutter speed down, you can get some really neat light trails from the cars that drive along that road past you. Yeah, that LaSalle overlook, uh, our viewpoint, is incredible. And it's it's another example that I'm not a entirely horrible uh, photographer because I got a, a great picture there. And I would say, you know, it was past sunrise. It was probably closer to 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning. And the, the beauty was the, the sky was just that almost lapis lazuli blue. And um, the LaSalle's had a nice blanket of snow on the top. And then you had the red rock in the foreground. And it, it all just kind of came together Um all right, so um, Bryce Canyon, Big Bend, now where? Um, let's see, Bryce Canyon, Big Bend. I talked about Arches. That was another favorite place. Um, Padre Island National Seashore in Texas is pretty cool, too. The sunrises are incredible, and I know I'm using the word incredible a lot, but it is a good word to use regarding the sunrises there. And if you go uh, for morning photography, I advise you to get there a little before dawn. And with your flashlight, you actually might be able to spot some of those elusive little white ghost crabs as they skitter around the beach and in the sandy dune areas. So you can get your camera all set up, and it's always a good idea to stake out your spot about 30 minutes before the sunrise. And then you just start taking photos as you watch the play of light and colors as the sun peaks from beneath that horizon and climbs higher and higher over the Gulf of Mexico. If you uh, walk a little way south along Malachite Beach, I used to pronounce it Malachite, but apparently it's pronounced Malachite, um, walk south away from the visitor center, you'll notice to your left sticking out of the water this bare saltwater washed two-pronged tree. And cormorants and pelicans like to perch there in the morning, and that makes a great silhouette against the sunrise. And if you're there... Uh, in between June and August, you might also have the opportunity to photograph the early morning public release of the Kemp's Ridley Sea Turtle Hatchlings out into the Gulf of Mexico. It's uh, quite a sight to see these little nacho-sized babies literally swimming across the sand to get into the water. And you can check the NPS website for this national seashore because there's a page with a schedule of hatchling release dates. So nice. that's another part. You know, and you mentioned wildlife, and, and we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about some of the obvious um, parks to go to get those wildlife photos, whether it's uh, Yellowstone with the, the bison or, you know, go up to uh, Glacier National Park, one of your favorites. And I know uh, from Logan Pass, you, you walk out to, to Hidden Lake or um, just along the boardwalk there, and you've got all the mountain goats waiting for you. Absolutely. And you know, another favorite place of mine is Fisher Cap Lake. It's in the mini glacier area of the park, and it's about a third of the mile from the Swift Current Motor Inn. And you're using the trail to Red Rock Falls to get to this lake. The last time I was in the park, uh, it was in September, I visited that lake three days in a row, and every single day I was rewarded with near and far views of moose. Morning's probably the best time again for moose moon because that's when they're out in the water dredging for aquatic greenery in the lake. But I did see them on occasion during the afternoon too. But if you love photographing moose, uh, that Fisher Cap Lake is the place to go in Glacier National Park. You know, we'd be remiss if we didn't look to the east. Um, we don't want to 
make folks think that the only place you can get great photos in the parks is uh, in the western half of the country. I know um, Virgin Islands National Park is just delightful for me um, in terms of um, underwater photos. And, and this is where I really need to be a better photographer and get good camera gear because you can dive on or snorkel on some of those coral reefs. And, and not only do you have the incredible colors and the, the waving motions of uh, the, the corals and the fans there, but you've got these iridescent green uh, parrotfish and you've got the the yellow and black striped sergeant majors and the blue tangs and every now and then you'll see a barracuda come through um it's just amazing and of course you know above water you know you've got pelicans coming through and whatnot speaking of parks in the east uh acadia national park uh in maine was a favorite of mine to go for fall photography oh my gosh the leaves were, when I went, they were just glorious with gold and red and orange. It was like an explosion of fall color. And my very favorite places to photograph that fall color were along the carriage roads. I mean, the ground would be paved gold or red with fallen leaves. And the trees would be green in some spots, but they'd be red and gold in others. And they'd create this sort of tunnel of trees with this inner glow that kind of invites you to walk further along the road. Um, it's also the place to go for star photography. Hmm. When I was there, I uh, had rented a vacation uh, home in Bass Harbor, and right above my bed was a skylight. And I remember waking up a little past 1 a.m. in the morning, and I looked up to see these white blobs against the black. And I didn't have my glasses on at the time, so everything looked blobby. Mm -hmm. But once I put my glasses on, those blobs resolved into the brightest stars I had ever seen. I mean, if I reached out, I could practically touch them. So I got dressed in a hurry and grabbed my gear, and I drove beyond Bass Harbor. I took a left, and I drove past Ship Harbor and onward to uh, a place called the Natural Seawall for some fantastic night photography in that national park. Hmm. Interesting. I have to try that next time I get up to Acadia. You know, Shenandoah National Park in, in fall is just incredible as well. Um, some might not think that there are many photographic angles to shoot, but uh, again, with the kaleidoscope of fall colors, it's really amazing. Just about anywhere you go in the park, um, you'll have that. But what's particularly interesting to me is if you've got so many waterfalls there that you can um, use the, the color of the forest, uh, the fall foliage, as a backdrop to these these wispy waterfalls, you know, if you slow down your shutter speed enough. Speaking of waterfalls, I can tell you that Olympic National Park in uh, Washington State is definitely a place to go photograph waterfalls. There's Mary Mare Falls and there's the Solduck Falls. And the Solduck is probably one of the most popular places to go for uh, photographing this waterfall. But Olympic National Park has a lot more than that. Um, it's one of my favorite places to go for forest interior photography. There's just something about photographing all that moss and the ferns and the, the trees covered with moss in uh, the Ho uh, rainforest and in the Quinault rainforest within this park. And I have a couple of favorite places there. If I'm in the Ho rainforest, I really enjoy uh, walking the short loop trail that's called the Hall of Mosses Trail. I mean, you'll see all sorts of interesting things there like uh, roots, uh, full-grown trees with their roots exposed and twisted around nurse logs from which they sprouted. And if you go to the Quinault Rainforest, my favorite place is called July Creek. It's just right off the road and it's another short loop trail with a bridge over that creek. 
Um, and it's just those two areas are really cool for getting, seeing so many different shades of green and uh, trying and photographing the inner glow of these rainforests. You can always just go right over to one of the beaches, uh, one of the many beaches in this park. And that includes uh, Kalalock Beach and Beach 4, Ruby Beach and Rialto Beach. I visited all of those. Uh, the summer sunsets there are stupendous. And the winter storms really dramatic and you can find all sorts of interesting sea life to photograph in the tidal pools like you know colorful starfish and anemones say that three times fast um, my favorite spot for a sunset is a toss-up between Kalalot beach and ruby beach i mean ruby beach has the sea stacks which adds some really interesting topographic features to a photo composition but Kalalot Beach run or Kalalot Creek runs through Kalalot Beach and it makes a great leading line shot from beach to ocean. And you can also photograph the famous tree of life there, which is a uh, Sitka spruce, which uh, uh, it's located on the beach north of the Kalalot campground. And the bluff underneath the spruce has been eroded by a small creek to create a shallow cave beneath the tree. So this tree is literally hanging onto the bluff by its roots, and it's been that way for decades. Yeah, I saw your recent picture uh, of that, and it truly, were, uh, truly was incredible. You know, we've been talking a lot about uh, nature photography and being outdoors and whatnot, and I, I, I don't want to overlook the historical and the, the cultural parks because there are some fascinating photographs to get, say, at um, Gettysburg National Military Park or, or Fredericksburg in Spotsylvania National Military Park. I've been out there and they've got the cannon set up approximately where they were during the Civil War and you can get get out there and, you know, using the, the cannons as a, a focal object, you know, get the feeling of, of what it might have looked like to the Civil War combatants. And you go up into central New Jersey and uh, Morristown National Historical Park and um, George Washington spent the winter there. And you can go into the house where he he spent the winter while his troops were out at Jockey Hollow. And you can get pictures of the interior of the house and the office where he worked with his uh, um, quill pen and um, ledgers out and whatnot. And then you can go over to Jockey Hollow and see the replica cabins that um, the Park Service has erected there and, and get a feeling of what uh, the troops really endured um, during that harsh winter. And, um, you know, going there, particularly in the wintertime, um, you can get some pretty striking images of, of history. And there you go, Kurt. I mean, you were wondering, are some parks more uh, photogenic than others? But, you know, after our conversation, it sounds like there's something, as I thought, that there's something photogenic about every single national park, national seashore, national historic site. There's something anybody can photograph there that's going to be really pretty and photogenic. You know, I think you're absolutely right, and I'm sure that um, we've probably overlooked or, or weren't aware of some shots, and so we hope that the listeners out there um, will go over to nationalparkstraveler.org and um, put a comment on the bottom of this podcast so um, you can share your thoughts on where some of the most photogenic parks are in the national park system. Becky, thanks so much for joining us today. It's, it's really got me um, interested in putting together my own to-do list of uh, photogenic parks that I have yet to, to visit and um, work on my rough photography skills. <laughs> You're welcome, Kurt. It's been a pleasure, and I always love talking about photography and national parks and other protected lands. 
That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we'll be talking about national parks in terms of being threatened or endangered. We think you'll find it both interesting and thought-provoking. For National Parks Traveler, this is Kurt Rappencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park Audio Series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.